Well, very simply, this is the refuge tree. (laughs) So this is the the representation of the symbol or construction that we'll be studying till April. There are black and white photocopies available, which I thought might be useful. Um, This... I started thinking about this series and thought, oh, it's quite straightforward. But the more I thought about it, the more more weight there is to it. Going for refuge is the central act of a Buddhist. So as a Buddhist practitioner, it makes complete sense. But if you haven't decided to orient yourself around Buddhist values, it seems a bit strange. So I'm going to ask you throughout tonight and throughout this whole series just to be open to what's being described. I'll be talking a lot about faith and about values. And they might, they might not be yours, they might not resonate with you. But what we're doing over this series is explaining the most fundamental part of Buddhist practice. In a way you could say meditation is fundamental, but you can meditate and not be a Buddhist. You can come to the centre and not be a Buddhist, but you can't be a Buddhist and not go for refuge. Those two are essentially the same thing. So... um, Yeah, it's quite a big thing to talk about. So I'm going to start with a story, um, which is the parable of the white path. And this comes from a book which um, may or may not still be in print, let's hope it is, called Readings from the Refuge Tree. So the Refuge Tree has got about 30 figures, historical and um, symbolic, on it. And this book has got stories about each of them. And this is a story that's associated with the Chinese teacher on the refuge tree. And it's the parable of the white path. A man is travelling to the west when before him stretch two rivers. On the left is a river of fire. On the right, water. Between the two is a white path barely four or five inches wide. From east to west is a hundred steps. The fire scorches one side of the path. The waves ceaselessly wash the other. As if this were not enough, in the east where our traveller stands is a bunch of hooligans and wild animals seeking to kill him. The poor man is seized with terror, but resolves to try and follow the path. At that very moment, he hears a voice behind him from his own bank. Friend, just follow this path resolutely, and there will be no danger of death. To stay here is to die. And on the west bank, there is someone calling out, Come straight ahead, single-mindedly and with fixed purpose. I can protect you. Never fear falling into the fire or water. And as our traveller sets off, however, the hooligans say, Come back, we won't hurt you. But nevertheless, he goes resolutely forward, 
reaches the West Bank safely, is greeted by his good friend, and there is no end of joy. So it's good news. This is what it means. In brief, the hither shore in the parable, that's the nearer one with the hooligans, stands for the world of Sangsara. The further shore in the west is that of Sukhavati, or the pure land of the Buddha. The hooligans and the animals, who seem to be our friends, are our senses, our consciousness, and so on. The river of fire is anger and hatred. The river of water is greed and affection. The white path, that thin white path, is the aspiration for rebirth in the pure land, which actually arises in the middle of the passions themselves. And the voice from the farther shore is that of Shakyamuni Buddha, who has disappeared from sight, but continues to point the true way. And from the west bank comes the voice of the Buddha Amitabha, his vow to save all beings. In such an image, easily understood and remembered, possibly, is encapsulated the message of pure land thought. So that is the mindset of the Buddha. That's the mindset of Buddhist teachings. The world is not a safe place to be. So this is from the perspectives of of rebirth. This is possibly from the perspective of trying to find contentment in this lifetime. So traditionally we'd say rebirth. If you can't get your head around that, just focus on trying to be happy this lifetime. So the teaching is based on the view of the world as being conditioned. And because it's conditioned, everything you experience is impermanent. And because everything is impermanent, it's not satisfactory. So that's the fundamental, and I'm sure you've heard it lots of times, and we'll hear it many times more. That's the fundamental view of the Buddha in his enlightenment experience. Now we can hear that, and in different moments we can think, yes, absolutely bang on, but we forget because there is something attractive or we think, oh, actually, it's not that bad, I've just got a new skirt, it's great. Or, um, oh, look, there's a rainbow. And we keep making, if not deals, then we keep finding pockets of comfort within samsara. And some of those pockets are more comfortable and more lasting than others. But the fundamental view is that it is unchanging and it is unresolvable. We cannot, however many pockets of comfort we create, we cannot change the nature of samsara. So that's the perspective, which is quite radical. And we may know it, I know it intellectually, And sometimes I know it emotionally, but I don't know it consistently. Otherwise, I'd be um, enlightened and a lot easier to live with, probably. (laughs) Well, it's true. So this is why it's phrased in terms of the three refuges. Because a refuge, as I'm sure you'll know, is a place of protection, a place of safety. So you may think, well, what's my danger? Where's my danger? Look at me, I live in the West, I live in an affluent urban society, I'm free to practice whatever religion I choose, I'm free to practice whatever livelihood I choose. Where is the danger? Well, the danger is spiritual. The danger is in never being able to be free from suffering until we perceive 
the actual nature of world and live in accordance with the world instead of against it. So that's what that story is about. That story is saying, look, this is what the world is like. You may think you're fine, but you are surrounded. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to your desires and to your foolishness. So until that view is a part of you, what I'm saying won't make sense. But that's why I'm trying to describe the Buddhist mindset before I go into this, just to give you um, a bit of context. So given that we're vulnerable to putting our trust in things that will let us down. Put most bluntly, that's it. We're playing with fire the whole time. We're putting our trust in things that will let us down again and again and again. Um, So the Buddha and his teachings are (coughs) refuges. They will not let us down. It's a different type of comfort. It's not as alluring as advertising or the warmth of human touch can make it it's a different it's a different type of satisfaction but they will never let us down and so that is the essence of protection one one who or that which serves to give shelter protection aid and comfort in particular you could say the third the third refuge the sangha jewel to me gives in a way the most comfort because it means that somebody else has done it so the Buddha as represented here saw the nature of existence and did it but he's sort of exceptional he did it without any teaching but if I think that a human being managed to do it, albeit with teaching and maybe it took them a long time that's more of an incentive that's more of an encouragement Just to clarify again, the Sangha in this instance is the enlightened Sangha. It's the noble Sangha. It's not us. It's not me. Um, It's people who are enlightened. So it's that community. I mean, we're quite good. You know. (laughs) Don't knock it. Very useful. But um, we are not infallible. And I really wouldn't place your undying trust in any of us. Well, we can probably, you know, look after your handbag or something. <coughs> Feed your cat. Something like that. So that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for um, a refuge from the truth of impermanence, the truth of insubstantiality, the truth of interconnectedness. We're basically in this world of constant change. And we're human beings. We need security. I mean, we're complicated because we need to be able to stretch move forwards but we also need to know there's a solid base so it's that solid it's something to which we can return something which will not change which will not let us down so it seems amazingly simple but the act of saying I go for refuge to the Buddha to the Dharma to the Sangha is the defining act of a Buddhist um those of you who became mitras or who will become mitras do it in the context of, of a puja, that, that ritual I mentioned earlier. 
and in the heart of the puja is, are the going for refuge verses. That's all you do, that's all you have to do, you say it. My ordination, the ordination ceremony has got a private ceremony where it's just you and the preceptor, me and the preceptor, and a public ceremony. But in the private ceremony, and I'm really hoping the three order members in this room will agree, the act of becoming, of joining the order is simply taking the refuges, the three refuges, and the ten precepts, the ethical precepts or training principles from the preceptor. Yes? That's it. You do all that training, and that's it. That's all you do. That's how important the refuges are. And of course, you have to keep taking them. You renew that vow, that intention every day. When we chant them in the puja, does everyone know what a puja is? Don't? Yeah. Um, we say each of them three times. So you say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. And then you say, I go for refuge to the Dharma. And then you say, I go for refuge to the Sangha. Then you say it all again. For the second time, I go for refuge to the Buddha. For the second time, I go for refuge to the Dharma. For the second time, I go for refuge to the Sangha. Then you say it a third time. You say it three times each. That's nine times in total in Pali and three times in English. They really want you to know what you're saying and to make sure that you're... I suppose that you mean it. It's quite unnatural, isn't it, to place your trust in an abstract concept or in the manifestation of an ideal. I found it quite alien. It is quite a strange thing to do. So it does take quite a lot of of repetition just to get it into your head to do it. And there are different levels of going for refuge. I mean, you can... Sangharachita, our teacher, who's um, just on the right behind the flip chart, he's categorised them in different ways. He said that there's, um, there's an ethnic or cultural level of going for refuge where it's just what you do. You're just brought up in Sri Lanka or um, Tibet or China and everyone around you does it, so you just do it. Um, it's, it yeah, it's your cultural practice. It's like some people might be C of E in this country. And then there's a level where you, you become more conscious of it and Sangha actually describes that as provisional. So you're interested, you're doing some research, but you're sort of coming and going with it. Maybe it's like taking up any new practice. You sort of, you might be really keen, and then, I don't know, something gets in the way, and you can't quite get up early in the morning to do it. And so it's coming and going. It's intermittent. And then there's a level when you're, you're sincere, so you're doing it more consistently. You really want to do it, but maybe you can't sustain it. And then there's a level when you've got enough momentum behind you that you become effective. Your going for refuge is effective, and that means that you will practice in almost any circumstance. And then that, in, in this culture, in the, in, the, um, in the Western Buddhist order, is the point at which you're accepted for ordination when you're going for refuge to the three jewels is pretty much unshakable when it's rocky, you know, when it's solid. So you may think, well, why did they get ordained? Well, it's because their commitment was definite and proved. Nobody asked them to, you know, 
do an MVQ, no one asked them to have GCSE Parley, nobody said, I think you should go to therapy, maybe they did. But generally it's about you're going for refuge, which could explain the diversity of people in the order. Because that's the criteria. Have you got faith? Have you got sufficient faith? The next level is real. It's real going for refuge. There's a level called cosmic, but I can't... I'm just going to stick it real, because cosmic makes me smile. So so the level of real going for refuge is... um, Sometimes in the sutras you'll you'll hear about people who actually met the Buddha face-to-face. So he'd have been walking along in India and they would have come to hear him talk or maybe they'd have met him on a full moon, night, full moon night or something in the forest. And through him speaking and through being in his presence, being in the presence of an enlightened mind, they spontaneously say, I go for refuge to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dharma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. So, that's, so when we say it, Deliberately, it's that practice thing of there's something that you would say instinctively, automatically, if you were enlightened, if you had insight. And we're doing it as a training principle. It's like the training principle of meditation. You know, we're training ourselves to return to the breath. It's a practice because it's repeated. So um, the practice of going for refuge, of focusing ourselves, instead of focusing myself around a career or a particular goal, I focus myself around the three jewels and I need to keep doing that. That needs to be my orientation. Because we're dynamic beings and you need to maintain the momentum. I mean, you know that. You'll all have <coughs> taken up something from saxophone to you know, bench pressing. And you know that it's easy to start, really easy to stop. It's quite hard to keep going. There's a very boring bit in the middle. Well, I don't know. Could just be me. Suspect it's not. So really, going for refuge then is—it's almost visceral. I keep doing this. I'm obviously thinking it's—it's—it's it's, it's a gut response. Yes, you need rough intellectual understanding of the Buddha, his and his teachings, but essentially, it's not—it's intellect on its own won't sustain you. There has to be emotional desire and a sense of a sense of faith. Now faith's quite hard to talk about because well it's inexplicable, it's a mystery. So you can you know you can put rational arguments forward and they can be very plausible. But essentially faith is something more than that, it's something different. Because if it was just rational, it wouldn't it wouldn't be faith. So all of that is, is present in the term going for refuge. There's loads and loads and loads written about this. Um, I've got a small reading list which um, I can give you, I can publish, which is um, this, this book, the, um, the, reading, the, um, the readings from the refuge tree. That's good to find out more. Um, there are loads of talks on the internet. There's um, a section in this book, What is the Dharma? by Sangharachita, which it is it's just a great basic Dharma book, and he talks very clearly about going for refuge in one chapter. Um, Kulananda, who's a senior order member, 
has written a book, which I really hope we've got lots of copies downstairs, called um, Teachers of the Past. Teachers of the Past. Um, let's get this right. Teachers of Enlightenment, the Refuge of the Western Buddhist Order. So that's all the factual stuff. But the order, the, the retreats that we used to go... Oh, hang on, how can I pray this? The retreats that I went on, as part of my preparation to be ordained, were called going for refuge retreats. The ordination process used to be called the going for refuge process. And I can't tell you how many talks they've been. If you think a going for refuge retreat lasted a fortnight, the order's been going 40 years, you might have seven talks on a retreat. There's a lot been said about going for refuge and different aspects of it. It's a huge, huge, huge topic. Um, and like any really big topic that means a lot, you'll find a way into it that'll interest you and then you'll forget and then you'll come back. But there's loads and loads and loads on the subject of going for refuge. So have a look and just find one thing. Just find one thing that interests you, that sparks you about it. So I suppose basically there are two... You've got two approaches, haven't you? You've got the moving towards something pleasurable and there's the moving away from something painful. So you could see the three refuges as these are safe, these will not let me down, um, the sense of them being jewel, they're jewels because they are incredibly precious um, and also unadulterated. They're not compounded, they're just of themselves. Um, so they're attractive. But also, like in this story, so you've got the man moving towards the pure land, but also he's moving away from danger. He's moving away from pain. From, oh God, I don't believe I've done this again. Why did I make that mistake again? You know, so you might be moving away from something. Um, maybe you just need to be, I don't know, it depends how you learn. It depends what motivates you. But just, just have a think about that. Maybe one day in a meditation, at the end of meditation, you can think, am I drawn towards something or do I move away from something? If I was going for a refuge, what would motivate me most? So, mm, so then you've got, so you've got this thing, this practice, which is essential to being a Buddhist. And you need encouraging to do it. You need things that make sense. So there are several, there are lots of images in Buddhism. We've already talked about the three jewels. Um, but the image of a tree, um, would it help if I brought this a bit closer? The image of a tree is handy because it's natural. So most people can, will have seen a tree. I don't know if that's going to stay there. Is that, is that visible? Can you see that? Okay. So it's sort of a symbolic tree. This was, um, it's part of a Tibetan tradition. So the Tibetans are very keen on, on lineage. It's very important to them. Um, it's, for the Tibetan, it's the relationship between the teacher and the disciple which maintains the lineage from the Buddhist teaching himself. 
So they, each tradition in Tibetan Buddhism has got its own refuge tree. So the Buddha, or a different manifestation of the Buddha, sometimes it'll be Padmasambhava, will always be at the centre on a lotus because um, he's enlightened. And then around him are the teachers who are particular to that lineage. So this, so not, not everyone will have this refuge tree. This is the refuge tree of the Western Buddhist order. At the front, we've got Sangharachita and eight of his teachers that he met in Kalimpong. Why is it in the Tibetan tradition? Because Sangharachita has several Buddhist ordinations. He started in um, Ceylon, as it was then, Sri Lanka, just after the war. He took one ordination there as a monk, and he travelled up through India. He arrived in northern India pretty much at the time as the Chinese arrived in Tibet, which meant that there was a flood of Tibetan monks, including um, about four of his teachers who taught him there. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. An intelligent, interested Westerner, passionate about Buddhism. How fantastic to have these teachers, Tibetan teachers, who desperately needed to communicate their lineage as it was being literally wiped out in their homeland. So that's why we've got um, teachers from different lineages on it. And the other reason why going for refuge is so central to um, the Western Buddhist order is because it's what is at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. It's not something that Sangharachita has imposed. It's not a theory. He's been taught in a lot of different traditions. He'd been ordained in different traditions. What was at the heart of them, what united them all, was going for refuge. It goes back to the day of the Buddha. It goes forward to Zen teaching. It's saying, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Any questions so far with me so far? Um, so here's how it works you build up the image it doesn't immediately come like that you start with a clear blue sky clear blue because it's the nature of mind empty, luminous anything can happen a white moon mat appears so it's like a full moon but on its side, flat from that arises a lotus the lotus as shown here, the red lotus, is a symbol of enlightenment because it's, it's open, it's open potential. On that appears the Buddha, so that's the central one. Now in this, in this one, we've got three Buddhas. We've got the Buddha of the present, the Buddha of the past, the Buddha of the future. It's complicated. Someone else will explain between now and April. If they don't, come back to me. So, but that's, that's what's at the centre. And then... As you f- so you visualise it, you're facing it. Yeah? Here, yeah. So you are the refuge tree. I'm sitting here. You're the refuge tree. Um, Buddha's the middle, pretty much where Rachel is. Um, the coincidence, she's on the hotspot. <laughs> to the left there, by Sanke Keto and, and Louis are, you've got... Um, hey? My Buddha of the past. Sadly not. <laughs> you're the Arahants. You're the tired old bods over there who've been slogging through. So when I said... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's been a hard life. So when I said it's the enlightened sangha, that's you lot. Yeah. So you have actually so, and you'll see on your little um, black and white photocopies, um, they are quite skinny and they're bald and they're old. 
They've been, you know, they've been living on arms. What is he laughing? What is he laughing? That's all right. So Buddha's got a very good sense of humour. He'd need to. She'd need to. On the right, over here in this rather exciting area, where Susan is, we've got the Bodhisattvas. Young, gorgeous. The height. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry about this. But um, the height of physical perfection. So these are, of course, um, rather more symbolic than actual figures. (laughs) So that's the reality. And this is the ideal. This is the perfection of the ideal. So it's all there. Now, in this, in this series, Inspirational Figures, people will be talking about different figures from different areas. So you'll get, um, our, well, next week, Mahashada. Say hello, Mahashada. Yeah, that's him. Um, hello. He's going to talk about Shakyamuni Buddha. That's the historical Buddha. Uh, at some time after that, Aryamati is going to talk about Dharmadina, who is one of the um, Arahants, one of the Buddha's disciples who achieved enlightenment. Sangaketu, who are you talking about? Well, I wasn't, but I might talk about Tara. Oh, there you go. There's no men against Tara. Oh, Tara doesn't. Is it? Oh, I'm not talking. Okay. There could be. I'm sure there's enough for plenty of talk. So Tara is one of the um, mythical figures that I'm pointing to there. Now, in front, in in this open space are the teachers who are nearest to us. So in this instance, it's Sangharachita and his eight teachers because they're, coming, they're bringing the teaching from the Buddha here down to us. It's, it's a bit like a cake stand. I'm going to regret this, but it's a bit like a cake stand where you've got a central point and then things going forwards and backwards, la, 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 either side. Yeah? So it's not, you know... It's much like a tree is a cake stand. It isn't, well, who knows? When you visualise it, it might be different. How do you, how do you visualise it? As a tree. As a tree. <laughs> <laughs> you see, very, very diverse order. Very diverse. He's a scientist. Anyway, and then behind the Buddha, you've got the teachers of the past, some of whom look quite scary. There was... Um, was it Bodhidharma shaved his, eyebrow, um, shaved his eyelids off so he could keep his eyes open to meditate all the time? wonder who's going to talk about him. Anyway, but that's... Um, they're all at the back, behind, kind of where the guys are, where Gary is, over there, Joe, yeah. Um, and then, above, circling above, are the jinnas, the five jinnas. So the Buddhas, the archetypal Buddhas of the five directions. Um... I won't go into them. Anyway, they're all up there, the conquerors. And then above, at the very top, so again, you've got the cake stand. So at the very top of the cake, circling round, is Vajrasattva, who is the primordial Buddha of undiluted Buddha essence. Completely pure, present in all of us. The sun and the moon are both there. In Tibetan tradition, um, it's very auspicious to have the sun and the moon in the sky at the same time, which you get in December, January, which is quite nice. Um, and here are you, looking at the refuge tree. On your left, let me get this absolutely right. Uh-oh. Yes, on your left is your mother and all women. 
On your right is your Father and all men. All around are all sentient beings. This is a big operation. This is universal. This is, um, it's Tibetan, so it's Mahayana, it's the great vehicle, it's cosmic, it's Vajrayana. It's about the universal will to universal enlightenment. So, fundamental and very hard to grasp at times to this is that there is no separation between me and anybody else, physically obviously, but in terms of particles or in terms of just will, energy, there's no separation, which means that there isn't, I can't attain individual enlightenment because I'm connected to everybody. So everybody is present as you visualise this. It takes a bit of practice. Don't, you know, don't worry if you don't remember everybody. You could just start by bringing awareness to the whole room. It's basically that it's not just you. you know. Macro version, it's every sentient being in existence. Micro version, it's not just you. You can kind of go in an opportunity. So this is where it gets weighty again. Because what you're contacting in the visualisation process is the transcendental. It looks very exciting. There's loads of colour. There's lots going on. You can um, spend a lot of time building up the visualisation, colouring it in, um, putting on gold leaf. But essentially, it's trying to dissolve your sense of ego, your sense of separateness and self-importance. It is a weighty practice. Traditionally, in the movement, I don't know if this still happens, but you only do it on retreats where you're training for ordination. I don't know if an ordin- Is that still the case? No, it's relaxed a little. Okay, it's relaxed a little. I'm consulting Marshada as the men's mitra convener. Grasangakata, but he's a Bodhimara, so we'll go. So it's, I mean, I'm talking about it in some ways quite lightly because it's, you know, there's a lot to cover and I'm trying to communicate it vividly. But essentially, it's an insight practice. You're doing it, I'm doing it, one does it to try and understand the nature of reality, which is very hard to hold in your head. It's really, really hard. So sometimes you just have to go back to, I don't know, just breathing in and out or just focusing on one figure, just going right, okay. I mean, you know, it's just so much to hold. You just try and focus on one thing. There's, um, yeah, just losing it a bit. So we've got all those people. Now here's what the Dalai Lama says about it. So I said it was a Tibetan practice. Um, so it's also sometimes described as a genealogical chart so it's kind of like your family tree of your Buddhist teachings in it says his holiness are represented the founders and teachers in an arrangement that symbolises the interconnectedness of various groups so that's you know well yeah in it are the teachers in an arrangement that symbolises their interconnectedness And within the context of Tibetan Buddhism, lineage is a sacred trust. 
which the integrity through which the integrity of the Buddha's teachings is preserved intact as it's transmitted from one generation to the next. So I guess most of us will have had some contact with Tibetan schools at some point and know that the importance of a lama, of um, loyalty to that lama, to that teacher is very important to them. And that's because they believe it's a transmission of lineage. So although we're not that, um, we're not in that tradition, we are in a tradition which was founded by Sangharachita. It's his movement. It's the Dharma as interpreted and communicated by Sangharachita, which is the basis of this movement of the Western Buddhist order, the Friends of the Western Buddhist order. So his teachings are essentially what make it, what make this order. This refuge tree, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't have it without him and without his teachers. It would be meaningless. So I suppose I just want to re-emphasise the importance of Sangharachita's teachings to this movement and to this order. So over the next 12 weeks, the talks, the speakers will introduce different figures on the tree and trace that lineage from the Buddha to his earliest disciples. Those teachers who took the Dharma from India to China, to Tibet, to Japan... Um, and in that we're looking at the breadth of the tradition from which this movement is drawn so it's a bit of a funny one because you're sort of going out and you're going you know a long way away but actually it all it all connects it all comes back to the one point to Sangrachta there so we're going to go you know all over the place but Ultimately, we come back to this place, this practice, this room, and it's the lineage which is important. And again, you could think, or maybe we could reflect at the end of it, on how going for refuge is at the heart of all those traditions. Tibetan Buddhism can feel very, very different to um, Theravadan tradition, or you know, you might be attracted to the stillness of Zen and think, well, you know, I'd rather have that than all that mad stuff with skull cups and blood. But at the heart of it is trying to understand the nature of reality. It's trying to live with an understanding of the world as impermanent and interconnected. It expresses in different ways, but fundamentally that's what's at the heart of it. And I hope that through this series we can see what is in common with all of the teachings, as well as what you know, marks them out as distinctive. So that's it really, it's, um, it's vivid, it's colourful, it's a weighty practice, it's central to, um, to being a Buddhist, to identifying as a Buddhist, to practising as a Buddhist, because it's about interconnectedness and it's about the truth, it's placing the heart. So what, what you're doing is you're putting those ideals, the ideals of the Buddha at the heart of your life by reflecting on it by meditating on it you're giving time you're giving your mind you're giving position in your heart (coughs) to the Buddha and his teachings time which you might otherwise be I don't know gardening or watching TV it's it's a conscious reorienting of your 
being. And well, I suppose because of that, it's even if you don't feel like you're getting it, it's a positive thing to do. It's a constructive thing to do. It's skillful. So sometimes I've been completely confused and just thought, oh, I've not got it at all. And figures that really weren't meant to be on the tree were on the tree. And figures that should have been on the tree weren't on the tree. But essentially trying to sit... It's a meditation practice, it's an insight practice. So trying to sit for you know half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half and focus on the truth, on reality is always a constructive, beneficial thing to do. So I'll leave the last word on this practice to Kulananda, who, um, as I said, he's a senior order member and um, his book, Teachers of Enlightenment, describes the refuge tree of the Western Buddhist order. And this is what he says about it. We reach upwards to the refuges. So he's describing us sitting down, looking at the tree, visualising the tree, so in the sky with all the beings. We reach upwards to the refuges through visualisation, through puja, through dharma study and practice. And we also reach outwards to others. When we prostrate in front of the refuge tree, we do it with our father and all men at our right shoulder, our mother and all women at our left. No one is excluded. We go for refuge for the sake of all. As we progressively open ourselves up to the process of self-transcendence, we begin to see that the notion of me isn't the final boundary of existence. This is where it gets cosmic. That reality is far greater than we are. That tipping of the balance from predominantly valuing the ego to predominantly valuing the field of spiritual influence, that's the real going for refuge. So that's the bit when I said it becomes effective when that's your orientation, that's what guides you. So that's an introduction to going for refuge, to the levels of going for refuge, to why you need a refuge in the first place and what the refuge tree represents. So why it's useful to focus on that. It'll make a lot more sense at the end of April. Let's hope. Great. Okay, so I suggest we have a cup of tea, maybe warm your feet up, and then come back and we'll do um, a short puja and maybe have a reading. So if we come back at um, 10 to 9, well, we could, I could start. Are there any questions? Has anyone got any? <coughs> yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, when you were talking about the tree, yeah. and thinking about the tree for the FWBO, which is a very new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So therefore you've just got something extra just that's yeah. So presumably other traditions have much bigger trees. Well, it depends. I mean, we've got the teachers of the past. So we've got everyone who took from, I mean, the... Yeah, well, these, um, so all these Shinran, Dogen, they're all up there. So they would be in other traditions, trees. Yeah. They'd have more, but they would have. It'd be like a Venn diagram. Wouldn't they? They'd have yeah. other areas, like yeah. handed down dialogues yeah. and all that kind of yeah. thing, wouldn't they? 
yeah. So the Gelugpa tradition will be different from the Kadampa, and that's so th- all of them will have the Buddha. Yeah. And so, like, um, if we've got um, Chattel Sangha Dorje, he might be on the Gelugpa one, but he might not be on the Kadampa tradition. But then somebody else who's in the Kadampa tradition on ours, you, do you know what I mean? It's they're not. Yeah. But you could do. I mean, you could do that. You could look at other refuse trees and compare them. Yeah, I mean, the Guru has John Carpenter yeah. and his two sons and his daughters, and then there's uh, the uh, Kagyu tradition with Minaretta, mm. uh, the, the poet. Mm. And also the representation of the Buddha. So I think initially, when Sanghi K talking about this, when the order was first started, we used a Tibetan um, refuge tree that had Padmasambhava at the centre. And then this was created in... It went. Yeah, okay. So in the 90s. So yeah, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is quite integrating. <coughs> but it's a lot on. <coughs> Shall I start handing these around? Yeah. Uh, anything else, somebody? I've got three there. So come back about um, ten two.